Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 8 of the Average to Elite podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today we are joined by a very special guest. So Dr. Ralph Mitchell joins us on the show today to talk about keeping athletes fit and healthy. So ultimately, they can play and compete in more training sessions and ultimately progress better in their sporting career. So Dr. Ralph is the current match day doctor and team GP at Wasp Rugby. That's how uh, I know of Ralph. I've had the pleasure of working with him for the last couple of years. And he's also a general practitioner with the NHS and private sector. And he also has the specialist interest in sports medicine. So I couldn't think of anyone better to get on board today to talk about this topic. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Dr. Ralph, uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, big thank you and a huge welcome to the Average to Elite podcast. I uh, really appreciate your time and I think we're going to have a really good conversation this evening uh, surrounding health and everything uh, that goes along with it. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Chris. It's an absolute uh, privilege to come and talk to you. Uh, uh, this is quite exciting. This is my, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but this is my first time ever on a podcast. So, uh, I feel like I've reached a life goal right now that uh, I've achieved. So thank you very much. (laughs) No, fantastic. It'd be be really good. I am really looking forward to today. And uh, I know like my audience is going to get a huge amount out of it. So yeah, it'd be really, really good. So essentially what I'd love to get into today is essentially how an athlete can maintain their health. So they miss fewer sessions, competitions, games, events, and then therefore they can ultimately just progress better in their sport or career. So Mm. Essentially, just to set the scene, I always like putting definitions on things. So essentially, we know what we're talking about. And as you mentioned, today we're talking about health. So in your opinion, uh, how do you define a healthy athlete? So what would that look like in your eyes? Um, so it's quite a complex thing. Um, I'd say it's multifactorial. That would be the, be the first thing. Um, I'd say it's a combination of physical, um, mental, and emotional um health combined together really um and within physical you sort of break that down into their uh, initial sporting demands so what does their body require to be healthy in order to carry out their sport and then also on top of that um which is an area which i have a particular interest in is what about the rest of their physical health um of a 20 year old athlete or a 30 year old uh, athlete um, and so when you combine that together, both components of the physical, mental health, obviously a huge one. Um, it's just something I, I'm particularly passionate about as well. And then that ties in as well with their emotional. So if you put all those factors together, I think that is something that we would say is a, a pretty healthy athlete. But saying that in this modern day and age and, and with any sport, it's not something you see too often. And, and uh, that's what sort of keeps me in the job, I suppose, trying to get people to that position, really. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I think when, if you ask the person on the street or an athlete, uh, what health is to them, they always refer to physical health. So, you know, they might say like, I follow a healthy diet. I follow like a healthy exercise regime, but they necessarily don't really think about the emotional and the mental side of it as well. So I think, yeah, as you know, they're going to have a massive burn on the physical. So like I said, it's multifactorial. Um, so yeah, that's, that's very cool. So now we know what we're looking at in terms of a healthy athlete. Uh, what would you say are the most common health-related issues you see 
in athletes and then potentially what causes these? So there, there can be um, different reasons for, for different things. If we sort of address each one individually as we go along. So from a, let's call it a musculoskeletal point of view, so the biomechanics of movement um, required in sport, whatever that may be, um, their demands and their needs are very, very different or what can be very different to their uh, non-sporting related um, needs as well. So a problem that a patient may have a problem with a shoulder, um, if they're an overhead athlete, so a cricketer or a javelin thrower or something like that. Um, common issues that we see around their shoulder pathologies, we'd have to work on a specific area within the shoulder, but also we look beyond that as to why they developed a particular problem there in the first place. So we look at other things as well, their back, their pelvis and things like that. So it's never just focused on where the injury is or why they've got a particular injury. On the side of that, I think that um, their, their physical health components that are not related to their sport is particularly important. One thing that often gets massively underlooked um, is other medical illnesses or medical problems uh, within sport. Uh, so things like asthma, diabetes, epilepsy, um, visual impairments, et cetera, et cetera, are all a huge part of what an athlete does in order to, to, to compete. I've been very fortunate to work with athletes uh, across the board from uh, from asthmatics uh, to epileptics but other other guys who've uh, in fact I remember one particular guy who, who was briefly with us at wasps for a period of time he had cystic fibrosis i mean an incredible human being played international rugby for australia um, and i got to work with this guy and see how from a lung function point of view this guy was able to perform and that was a real privilege and an eye-opening to see how um, an athlete uh, would look after themselves I think the other big area that often gets forgotten about, um, particularly in younger people, um, so obviously elite athletes generally in and around their 20s and 30s and sometimes late teens, uh, sexual health, massive component of um, being healthy. Um, and uh, I believe, or certainly I've heard rumors anyway of colleagues and doctors of mine who've been to the Olympics and seeing in the individual dormitories of each player or each athlete's room, big boxes of condoms. Um, so it sounds quite sort of trivial or sort of joking to, to have those type of things not going to buy. But obviously at the time it shows that, you know, once competition's over, you know, they're just normal human beings like the rest of us. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things you want to get addressed those. Um, other common things that I would generally tend to see um, from a non sort of sporting side of things that often gets neglected, skin health is huge. Um, and I say, uh, athletes who do a lot of exercise and sweat a lot. Athletes then develop different skin conditions or they sweat alongside having an underlying skin condition there already. So things like eczema, psoriasis, um, moles that they're spending a lot of time outside in the sunshine with. These obviously can have cancerous or precancerous changes that have to be observed and be wary, wary of. Um, so yeah, that'd be the main sort of big physical things that as a doctor, I don't want to neglect as well as to say their, their shoulder problem that they've turned up to the, into my clinic with say I've got a sore shoulder there's other things that don't want to get missed as well and they, and they often weirdly can be linked as well sometimes so uh, yeah possesses a, a, a huge challenge sometimes to unpick what you think is not related to them at that particular time actually is or it somehow is convoluted got themselves there so yeah it's, it can be quite complex sometimes so they're the main ones under physical ones anyway.
Yeah, brilliant. I think um, you know, I've definitely heard these stories as well about the sort of um, the Olympic Village and the vending machine full of condoms and everything like that. It sounds yeah, like they had to pay for it. That's that's tough for you. Really, that they tell they got it for free. <laughs> uh, sponsored by it, maybe. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, like these things that you probably don't really sort of think of, especially like yeah. the you know the skin health side of things and. No, um, I think everybody's perhaps a little bit numb and not perhaps aware to them. So just knowing this now, they just become more mm. aware, more mindful of these types of issues. Um, in terms of like perhaps the physical side as well, uh, what do you think um, perhaps prevents players or athletes from training at their best in terms of missing sessions and stuff like that, whether it's like upper respiratory issues, gastrointestinal or... Yeah, so if we sort of say the, so the non sort of MSK related stuff uh, parked to one side and we talk about sort of medical issues um, as opposed to the musculoskeletal issues. I would say in terms of our training time lost or game time lost, uh, uh, I would say respiratory infections would be probably number one. Um, everyone, see everybody at the moment has heard of coronavirus, but coronavirus already exists. Um, the version that we've got at the moment is just a new strain of that. But Coronavirus causes common colds, uh, flu-like symptoms, upper respiratory tract infections, the usual stuff that presents in this country uh, in the beginning of the year uh, and can come through. Interestingly, and I think this is quite unusual, is that if an athlete moves country a lot, so maybe they're spending six months of the year somewhere nice, you know, in Southern Hemisphere, but comes to the UK or you know, vice versa, they're exposed to different strains of the same pathogens. So in other words, that they may have had uh, flu in Australia or flu in, in Dubai or wherever they're based, but then come to the UK, they then get the UK's flu because their body hasn't had the chance to fight that off or there hasn't been, they haven't been given a vaccination towards that. So even within different countries, different strains of the same viruses affect. So when athletes move, they are more exposed to whatever that country's got. And I've seen that a lot with... Uh, rugby players who come from overseas into the UK and all of a sudden they're, you know, they're, they or themselves or their families are sending me, Doc, I just can't get over a cold. I've had a cold persistently for six weeks. What they've probably had is actually multiple viruses over the period of certain six, five, six, seven weeks that has caused them to get become unwell. So that is a really common thing uh, and it's probably more common than, than they think. Gastrointestinal, I think generally these days food hygiene measures have reduced that. There is norovirus, obviously, which is quite common. And interestingly, if you have a, an athlete in a team environment, they're more likely to pick up and obviously transmit norovirus because it's generally transmitted what we call by fecal oral routes. So people haven't washed their hands properly, touch, say, utensils, cooking utensils, cutlery. And then it's passed around a team environment. Similarly, um, men or women in a closed environment, space, say changing rooms, touching each other's property, um, that will often in itself cause transmission of, 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 of that around. So it's, it's quite, quite common. But in my experience, and certainly my experience working elite sport, um, by far the most common thing is um, upper respiratory tract infections. Um, I would be interested to know, I haven't looked at it this season, but I've looked briefly at, in previous years, comparison of MSK issue, injuries versus medical illness issues, and what's, who's had the most time off because of them. And I'd say they're almost 50-50 in some environments and in some sports. 
and especially now in this current environment with coronavirus um, going around, you know, everybody is now thinking of of medical illness, and, and rightly so, uh, because of the, the effects that it has. So it's becoming more prevalent. The bigger the squad, uh, the bigger the, the poorer the weather, uh, lack of vaccinations within a team lead to transmission of any form of respiratory tract infections. Um, we talk about prevention and minimization of, of those things. Um, there's different things that we can do, where I call them the practical and the medical, to sort of divide them into two. The practical side of things, I would definitely go along the lines of strict hand hygiene measures, things that we're all talking about at the moment on the press and the media about hand hygiene, washing for 20 seconds, singing happy birthday, whilst you're doing it, all those common things. We've been, as doctors, been banging those things into people for the last few years, however long you've worked in the sport. That is just our common bread and butter, you know, hand gel at the end of a, a dining room but having washed your hands before because certain bacteria or viruses aren't killed by hand gel they have to have hand soap and water as well as the as the uh, antibacterial so common things like that then you have your your biological aspects or as i like to call them sort of the um nutritional side of things that will come in come into play um there is a potential link and it's not that strong of um, uh, certain vitamin supplementation and that reducing, obviously, as you know better than I do, in terms of, of injury prevention. Uh, zinc is something that I've looked into more recently in the last year or two, and I believe the evidence obviously is quite strong for that. And I, I sort of myself generally tend to you know, recommend that. Um, the other big one is vitamin D. So in, in primary care and in general practice where I work majority of my time, um, vitamin T, D has been the go-to test for practically everything and any symptom under the sun. Everybody links it now to vitamin D, which is wrong. You know, we shouldn't do that as doctors. You know, we should try to look for other things. But if in doubt, we say check the, check the vitamin D. Uh, you can always get a low value. In other words, a, an abnormal reading. You can reassure the patient by giving them a tablet. It's a great medicine because you've given the patient a tablet to make them better. But really, if you drill down into it, it's very hard to nail some of these more vague symptoms and illnesses in association with vitamin D. But certainly in an immune system, um, having adequate vitamin D is something that we'd recommend, and particularly people of non-Caucasian origins. And so if we've got Afro-Caribbean or, or African um, players coming into the UK, where obviously darker, win darker days, darker winters, compared to where they're back home, that is something we're targeting now as well. I've even heard it linked <coughs> recently today uh, on the news with coronavirus because we're not going out, obviously because of lockdown. We've just come through winter. People from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, uh, potentially their risk of low vitamin D is higher than ever. So there'd be the two things I would, I would address and look at. So if a patient came to see me with recurrent infections, I'd be doing blood tests for zinc, vitamin D and a few other bits and pieces as well to see why are these people uh, becoming unwell. I think that the last point on that would also mention is uh, training load. So as doctors, we have that very lucky privileged position of sort of sitting back away from the S&C side of things and saying, right, what are these players putting through their body? And we do know that high intensity endurance um, exercise lowers the immune response, uh, creates a sort of inflammatory state that obviously then affects the immune response. Um, and that is something that 
initially I became a bit skeptical when I first read it, but actually it has quite good understanding, good science behind it now. And I would recommend um, listening to Professor Ross Tucker's um, podcast and science and sport. He talks quite in depth about that, far more educated than I could. But it's something that is becoming increasing. So we've got an athlete who's suddenly ramped up their training. Their diet isn't pretty good. Maybe they come from overseas. All of a sudden they're getting lots of respiratory tract infections. They would be the things I'd be looking backwards for to see why they're getting them. So yeah, in a long-winded way, that's my my sort of summary of that. No, that, that's very nice and in-depth. That, that's really cool, really good summary. Um, just to touch on it, because obviously from a nutrition perspective, from the vitamin yeah. D and zinc, uh, would you always suggest trying to get some form of blood work done just to see the levels prior to supplementation? Or would you just say like your, same example, someone didn't come to see you, but they frequently get run down with respiratory tract infections, would you just say, okay, just take them as a preventative thing or would they have to come in and test it first prior to supplementation? So the, yeah, I think it depends what you're trying to do. Are you trying to prevent injury and illnesses or illnesses or are you managing somebody who's got lots of illnesses? I think if you're managing somebody who's got lots of illnesses, then it's probably reasonable to test them. But injury or sorry, illness prevention, I certainly wouldn't be needing to do blood tests on everybody i think it would be probably a waste of time because we're trying to pre in a preventative state and we're probably lead down too many rabbit holes for other things to try and do so i would recommend that if it's obviously safe to do so uh for that those type of things to be uh looked at and, and discussed with a proper nutritionist and then if the nutritionist would recommend it to take for them then i certainly wouldn't stand in the way of that so yeah i think it's something that as I said, you initially became quite skeptical about it, but now I've read into the evidence of it and think actually there is something behind this. Um, and certainly it'd be a nice study to find out, you know, of people who've, you know, teams, zinc levels you know, throughout the year and then what times do they get their, their illnesses and, and things like that. So that'd be a nice study to, to look at, I suppose. Uh, but something, yeah, that I think I would be directing everybody to a proper nutritionist day. Like if, there's, if there is a history of this, and it ties in quite well with medicine and medical doctors working more closely with S&C and particularly on nutrition. We are the guys that are preventing these guys getting ill in the first place or injured. Um, there's a common joke between S&C and medicine. You, they break them, we fix them. Uh, in terms of, you know, you break them down to make them stronger, obviously, not literally break them. Um, but it's that constant backwards and forwards. And I quite like that analogy, but I think nutrition comes on board with the medicine side of things where we're trying to get them in a position to do what the SNC need them to do. So, uh, yeah, I'd say it's, uh, it's something they, sh they should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, very nice. Very cool. So we talked a lot about the, about the preventative side of things, uh, especially for like upper respiratory infections. If someone has, uh, upper respiratory infection, is there anything they can do to decrease their duration uh, and perhaps the severity of it? Or is it a case of you've got it, just wait it out? So I think initially, there's some evidence to suggest that vitamin D, um, sorry, zinc initially taken in the first few days of, uh, of illness can reduce the symptoms of it. Um, there was vitamin C knocked about for a while, but I don't think the evidence was as strong for that, um, certainly as, as far as I've read. Unfortunately, I would say we as doctors would probably look at it and say, actually, you know, once you've got it, we often look for a medical cause of treatment. So if it's a bacterial infection, we will be given out antibiotics to try and treat it. We use different severity and scoring systems to work out whether the athlete just needs to ride it out themselves or 
do they need an intervention with antibiotics? Um, I won't bore you with the details of that, but it's it's a it's a, the idea is to work out is it a viral infection or is it a bacterial infection? Yeah. So we, we we in one way you can probably prevent some bacteria viral infections, but bacterial infections are harder to you'd hope the body could fight off a certain immune response but some things they're, they're not capable of doing that so certain types of pneumonias certain types of other infections i i think that becomes less relevant really yeah absolutely in terms of like the gastrointestinal issues that athletes and yeah. can have um what seems to be like the main or shall we say the primary cause of that and is there anything we could do from a preventative side to yeah um yeah minimize risk there so let me give you an example. So if a player came to see me with a rather nasty skin infection uh, that required antibiotics or an insect bite that required antibiotics for an infection, and I give them a particular type of antibiotic that in non-medical terms is equivalent of giving them bleach um, because it's such a powerful antibiotic to fight off the infection. And the one I'm commonly thinking of right now is the drug called flucloxacillin, a penicillin-based drug. And it's very, very good at fighting off, you know, nasty skin infections and things like that. However, it destroys, uh, I believe it destroys the gut bacteria and good flora in the stomach because almost every single athlete that I, or, or patient that I, who's non-elite athlete has come back to me and said, Doc, it worked really well, but by Jove, does it upset your tummy? And does it give you diarrhea? And that obviously makes sense when you're, it's killing this horrible, nasty staphylococcal infection. But what is it actually doing alongside that? It's destroying the, the gut flora as well. So I'm a big advocate of once guys, once there's an outbreak of uh, norovirus or some form, anything that's upset normal gut flora, to get everybody on probiotics, or should be looking at probiotics, uh, whether it be yogurt or whatever else the method they want to take that. Similarly, once you've had a course of antibiotics, it might be useful to look at probiotic supplementation in your diet uh, afterwards to restore normal gut flora again, because you may clear the infection quite well and you know get through that. But if you have knock-on effect of diarrhea because of the necessary antibiotics for a week or 10 days after you've cleared the infection, that is going to affect your performance. You know, risk of dehydration, risk of uh, electrolyte disturbances, cramping, etc etc so there may be some evidence or good biological plausibility for getting on behind probiotics um, once you've cleared a, a course of antibiotics it may help keep your gut bacteria healthy yeah very nice would you say that's something you have to take year round or just use periodically i can you take a course of probiotics for maybe i know say four weeks and then that will you know uh, repopulate your gut bacteria for the rest of the year or is it something you have to take continuously and advocate to have probiotic-rich foods in your diet throughout? I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure, if I'm honest with you. I'd suggest, and certainly in my experience, and this is only going on my experience, that the guys that I've worked with, it's always around the time when they've had the infection. But, you know, again, it is, it is important to keep good gut and good immune health all year round, particularly through different periodizations of training. So if you've experienced diarrhea for non-infective reasons, you know, whether it be from um, eating some different food that's not infective or, you know, heat adaptions or whatever it may be, that gut bacteria plays a huge part in your ability to perform. Uh, 
So it is important to keep it all good all year round and best way possible. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if I'm, if I'm honest with you about the, uh, the exact science behind what you need to take a probiotic all year round. But certainly for any time an athlete who's had flu cellin that I've had to give them, I always warn them, look out for the diarrhea and get your probiotics on board. Um, and they often come back and go, you know, you were, you were right there, Doc, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't like to tell them that side effect, but that's by far. It's up there with, you know, watch out for anaphylaxis because <laughs> if they're taking, never taken penicillin before. Some of the, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I don't have to experience that in no, the near no, future. No, no. You, look, you look pretty healthy to me, Chris. You think you'd be okay. <laughs> I, I've been out in the sun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got your vitamin D and you're all right. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, just to touch on the vitamin D uh, side of things, um, I, say I would always recommend uh, individuals to supplement vitamin D throughout the winter months just because of reduced uh, yeah. sun exposure and so on. Mm. And even when it is, um, say, sunny outside of the winter, it's still freezing cold, so you're still wrapped up and uh, skin yeah. exposure is very low. And so... Is there any sort of adverse effects there sort of supplementing with vitamin D year round? Say, for example, you're taking a high dose vitamin D supplement for the summer mm-hmm. and sun exposure is still very high and skin exposure is still high. Is there any sort of adverse effects from doing that? Yeah, there is. There's, there's various things. I mean, I've never seen them, uh, but I've certainly read of them. And there's certainly some stuff in the literature of hypercalcemia, uh, which is high calcium levels in the blood, causing presentations of unusual things like uh, kidney stones. So even that, you know, say it's kidney stones or kidney stones, but they can be quite severe in some cases. I would always urge any athlete for any supplement to check a with obviously the nutritionist who's doing it, but b also with their doctor about their monitor because if they've got a history of kidney stones themselves or a family history of it, it may need to be looked at in a little bit more detail. Uh, in other words, you wouldn't want to recommend something that could cause further problems down the line. Uh, there's other certain bone conditions as well that cause high, high calcium levels. Vitamin D would obviously cause further monitoring of that, so, or sorry, further complications with that. So closer monitoring would be needed. So if in doubt, check with uh, a doctor. And if you haven't got a regular access to uh, a sports medicine doctor, then your, your GP is equally as versed in what, and what to do in the scenario so there'd be no problem pop along to your local gp they'd be more than happy to help you uh for this yeah brilliant answer that really well thank you um so we talked about uh you know the potential causes and then the interventions as well but as you know um there's always going to be some compliance issues doesn't matter whether you're a nutritionist trying to get someone to you know get on board and subscribe with a nutrition program snc with a weight program uh, you know, you name it, you always can have compliance and issues here. So mm-hmm. what do you see is um, the most common issue with athletes complying to, say, like a intervention that you put out? So say, for example, they come with you with a condition, you say, right, this is what it is, we need to do X, Y, Z. Do, first of all, do they go away and do that on a whole? And if they don't, what tends to be the common issues there? I think, you know what, it's it's been a very interesting thing. So whether it be medication, long-term medication for somebody or, um, you know, health strategies to manage illnesses and things around the house. It, it, it can be difficult to be perfect. We're asking human beings to live sometimes perfect lives and that just isn't, you know, possible. Um, you know, especially at the moment where I'm hearing, you know, stories of, you know, athletes getting sick and then their family members getting sick and they're following me going, you know, 
well, what have I done? Have I given it to them? You know, it, it's, it, it's, ne- it's nature, it's life that things go, you know, these things happen. I think compliance often has, I've found out now, has become a more of a doctor-patient or doctor-athlete relationship problem. I think athletes will only do what a doctor asks them to do if they trust them. So I think it's it's very, very hard for an athlete to say, you know, oh, I have to take this supplement or I have to take this particular medication. Um, but does this guy really know what he's talking about? Or does this doctor really care about what happens to me or is interested in the bits that I'm interested in? So I think unless you've got the doctor and the patient both equally aligned and parallel with their their aims and objectives then that for me has been one of the biggest things to do with compliance i've given guys treatment plans and they've gone off completely off on their own tangent early in my career and i thought why have i not come back but it's a because i've not explained it to them so they don't understand it so that leads to a trust issue or um i've sort of given it whimsical and 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 sort of not really understood their worries or concerns about taking something um I think there's a whole thing on anti-doping which we haven't even touched on here um which you know guys can rightly so get concerned about and elite athletes you know always take these opportunities to say these things is that you know it's so important you check everything you take it's so important you check um every medication that even your gp gives you because they themselves gps who don't work in sports or who haven't done uh, anti-doping education may not know what you that you're taking so you know that is a trust issue in itself so compliance comes down to do they trust the doctor what they're doing do they buy in to what the goal of what the doctor is i.e is the, is the athlete's goal and the doctor's goal the same thing uh and then i think as well about a communication it comes down to communication so there there'd be the main ones but certainly by far in my experiences i've got more experience in in, in sports medicine it has been a athlete buy-in uh, do they believe what you say trust yeah yeah i'd completely agree with that i think it's it's the same that goes with nutrition it goes with strength and conditioning you know sports yeah. psychology you know if they don't trust the person that's giving them the advice then ultimately they're going to do their own thing um yeah i 100 agree with that do you see a difference perhaps between in compliance between athletes, say with the boys at Wasps, who you have more contact time with and they know you more, I know they speak for you very highly, um, yeah. versus perhaps uh, people are coming to your practice and see you for maybe 10 minutes and you have to go in, right, do X, Y, Z in a very short amount of time, in, out, instead of, say, for example, with Wasps, where perhaps a little bit longer, they get to know you, have more contact, and so on. So, you know, hugely, I think um, the doctor patient relationship between an athlete and their doctor uh, and the relationship I have as a doctor with my sort of, I call them my NHS patients is completely different. I remember hearing a really good quote from a, a very senior doctor who worked in cricket. He said, he talked about a, a, a cricketer. I think it was Freddie Flintoff might've been, I can't remember exactly, but he said he wouldn't, the cricketer wouldn't let the doctor treat you unless he'd had a beer with him. I thought, you know, imagine that, you know, nowadays, you know, going, I couldn't really sit down and, go for a beer or somebody then actually i thought about it after and i thought he's actually right you know this is where we go back to is is a trust thing if they trust you they will an athlete will do everything you tell them to the nth degree and it's so nice when they do do exactly what you say because it's almost like ah this is what's meant to happen 
because in my other patients I look after in Joe Public, again, like you say, it's a 10 minute consultation, it's an in and out job, and guys just don't really, you know, uh, he's I've seen him one week, I'm seeing a different doctor next week, he might tell me something different. Whereas the great thing I've noticed in sports medicine is the continuity of care, and that is so important for athletes, and that then leads to trust which in then turn leads to compliance with whatever treatment program. And like one thing I really think about in terms of getting an athlete buy-in, and this is probably the crux of why I do it, is that, you know, you have to care about these guys. Like you have to show that, you know, they're not just machines. They're not just numbers. They're not just slabs of meat that can perform and do amazing things. They're human beings. And in my case, working with wasps, it's, there's someone's son and you know I've got a young son myself and I'd like what care what I want given to my son uh if he was a rugby player and I want to provide that for those guys um you know we talk about how you know amazing athletes they are but they are human beings young men at the end of the day and that is so so important it's like will they look back on their time as a with a doctor i.e me during the career and go did he care for me did he really buy in for what I, you know, believe what I, you know, look after me. Did he really care about me as a person, not me as a rugby player? And I think that's huge because if you can get an athlete to trust you and show that you're on their side, their their outcome from whatever treatment you have to involve them with is 10 times better because they will believe and buy into what you say because they know they can trust you and know they can buy in you. And that's, that's what drives me in sport is that you know, I want these guys to look back in 20 years' time and go, well, I had a nice time at loss, but, you know, the doctor did care for me, and that's what drives me. No, that's amazing. That's powerful. I really like that. And uh, like I said, it's very similar in, you know, every single sort of department in terms of the trust and the compliance. If you don't have that trust, you know, you can know all the best interventions in the world, but ultimately, mm. if they're not going to follow it because they don't trust you, they're not going to mm. see any results. Um, yeah. No, that, that's, that's really cool. So sort of moving on to uh, from perhaps the physical side of things and into the mental health. And we know it's a very high area of interest at the moment. I know we've definitely got a like a stronger sort of campaign with wasps and stuff at the moment as well, looking at mental health and so on. So essentially, like how, first of all, I guess, what's, what's the impact of mental health on a player? And then is there any way we can sort of screen and monitor these athletes uh, to be on top of their mental health? So that, that, that's a really, really good question because I'm of the opinion that if you can untap an athlete's brain in terms of making them happy, and you use that in a very loose expression, but happy in terms of you know, improving their mental health, imagine the physical output that you can get for them. It's like strapping a, a rocket booster to their performance and saying, you know, this is what you're capable of if your brain is in a positive, focused, happy place. Because there's obviously a huge link between the, the mind and body. Uh, in psychiatry, they, 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 they're, they've got it pretty well nailed down in, in, in psychiatry terms, is that, you know, the influence of depression, for example, if you take a depression as an example, of the physical effects of a mental illness. And the way we go about diagnosing a mental illness is uh, sort of criteria. We think use a thing called anhedonia, which is you know lack of enjoyment of things they normally do. Uh, you know your get up and go. We're supposed to speak um, biological symptoms. You know there's no energy, lack of sleep, and and then the third component is low mood. So two out of those three components that we use to diagnose the mental illness 
are actually physical health components. So if you imagine if, if someone who is depressed, it's essentially them functioning. If they're only just displaying you know, to, to themselves the low mood and if they're managing to get by on the other things, you know, the, the lack of enjoyment, the lack of drive, the lack of sleep, and, you know, sleep as being one of the most important pillars of, of performance, they're operating essentially on 30% of what they're capable of if they're only displaying their low mood. So as a doctor, it's my job to unlock those other two things in terms of mental health to get those guys back in a position because if you unlock that you unlock almost 60 percent i believe of their performance and that it makes a huge difference so again that's sort of the the link to mental health but again these guys aren't just rugby players and i use that in any sport they aren't just whether it be cycling or you know, hockey or football whatever it is they are not just athletes they are human beings they have faults, fears, and, and worries like the rest of us. But they are somebody's parents or somebody's child, sorry. They've got parents. And it's treating the athlete as a whole. And I think if you treat them as a whole person, not just as the squad number, the output that you can have is huge. And one of the things that I took away from it is I read an article about a player at the club just as I joined um, who was having a you know problems with their mental health, and I thought I was with him throughout a period of injury um, and part of his journey, and it really upset me that how you know we were so focused on his physical health problem, which you know let's not be wrong, it was a very serious injury that this guy had suffered, but the thing he wanted to talk to about the media about was his mental health. And that really sort of struck, struck a chord with me. And I think as well, being I've just turned 36 myself, sort of almost at the same age as obviously probably on the older side of them, but you know, round about the same age as a lot of guys playing rugby. I thought, you know, I know what it's like, the worries and fears that they have as young parents or, you know, just being married or, you know, buying houses and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, why aren't we dealing with this? Because if we can unlock that potential with these guys, we're going to get so much more performance out of them. You know, and they're going to enjoy what they're doing. So I thought about it in terms of, again, of a physical component where we bring the guys into pre-season and we screen them for uh, hamstring problems. We screen them for uh, groin injuries. We screen them for other various biomechanical issues. I thought, why aren't we doing that with their mental health? And as a result of that, you know, we do mental health screening in primary care anyway. There's two recognized... Um, protocols that we use for anxiety and depression which obviously as you know they're most common mental health problems i use those screening questionnaires as part of pre-season to say right guys this is what we're going to do as part of your your makeup and all i've it's a quite a simple thing but it gives me values to, to look back and it's, it's standardized scoring system so i know if someone's going to score highly on it it's anonymized other than to me and this is where we're talking about buy-in that if guys trust you that they're going to put their correct values down, they know that you're going to hopefully help them. And I like to intervene at that point. And, you know, you can talk about it as a pyramid in terms then of outcomes. Some guys just need a pat on the back. Are you okay? The next guys just need a bit more of a chat and a bit more in depth. And some of the guys need other interventions and medical interventions. And if you can get that, that information and make those, you know, big adjustments to people's, psyche or well-being as i like to call it um you're unlocking a hell of a lot more potential then um 
because you know mental health in sport is huge. It's only become topical more, more recently. When you read these awful stories, guys' career ending or injuries or other problems away from the game, it, it's heartbreaking. Why haven't we, in sport in general, why haven't we as doctors been more proactive in dealing with this? So it's a huge passion of mine. And again, it ties back into, will these guys have a positive experience of being a rugby player when they leave the club? The only way I can do that is to make sure that they feel like they've been looked after in every component of their, their well-being. And it's not just their MSK stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, no, it's a huge component, isn't it? And we know how important the you know the psychological impacts the physical as well. Um, mm. And it's like plethora for like research coming through now showing how you know psychological health can affect like upper respiratory infections and susceptibility yeah. and everything yeah. like that. So mm-hmm. I'd be really keen to see like if there's a case of um, or should we say a few months like mood scores and stuff like that across yeah. the year, and if there's a correlation and association with um, you know. Um, sort of any form of like a respiratory infection or something like that. Yeah, yeah. well, there, there's well-known um, psychological or psychiatric disorder called seasonal affective disorder, which you know the dark nights uh, or sorry earlier dark nights winter affects people's mood. Which then you know we think is that linked to potentially low vitamin D or you know you can ask those questions. So there is that huge you know biopsychological component to these things that you know, we may find out in 10 years time going, crikey, what did we miss that for? It was so obvious at the time, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there is huge component of uh, not just, you know, depression leading to immune problems, but then that depression causing poor eating habits or, you know, lack of exercise that they normally do, which then affects their physical health as a knock-on and they turn to other things, whether it be alcohol or smoking or drugs or, you know, that type of thing. It's all linked to the core problem, which is the mental health problem in the first place. So yeah. that's how it will affect their performance down the line. Yeah, 100%. Um, apart from, say, seasonal changes, um, is there any time point throughout the year or an athlete's career where they may be at heightened risk of like mental health issues, whether it be like yeah. injury or... So injury is obviously the, I would say the probably the most obvious one. So what we do now as well at was so not only do we screen guys um, in pre-season and then intervals throughout the year, uh, this year's probably a bit different, obviously, with, with what's happened. Um, but we'll also screen them when they suffer a catastrophic injury. So if it's a, if it's a season-ending injury, we will screen them then for mental health problems and we'll monitor them as part of the rehabilitation. So in some ways that they'll pass certain you know, markers I will also check in with them at certain points that their mental health isn't dropping at the same time. You know, they may be flying physically, but mentally they may be worried about, you know, something else. The other big one, which I really want to get into next year, hopefully, um, is addressing guys, uh, stuff away from the club a bit more. Um, you forget about contracts. You know, I don't know anything about really in terms of all that side of the, you know, the business side of rugby, but, that will have a huge effect on a guy if he thinks, well, my contract's not being renewed next year. Uh, that will affect his performance now, but it'll also affect how he feels when he goes home at night. Is there an issue at home? You know, we bring players from overseas. Are they worried about missing their family back home, wherever they may be? You know, we're young guys who sometimes have never been away from home before. We stick them in, you know, lovely blighty here in the pouring rain in the winter. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we expect them to just adapt and get on with that. 
And part of that, I think, is, is like looking after the athlete away from the club and also their families. That's a huge part of it. If you can look after their families as well as them, that creates that trust then as well. And I think that's a huge part. If you help their family, which again is fascinating to be able to be able to do. Um, yeah, you can really get, you can really help an athlete uh, in terms of improvement. And I, I think that that is huge. I think our national health service is set up in such a way that in this country that we are so lucky um, to have it. Um, we had a, a lovely story a couple of years ago. I brought a player over and I had to see his wife for something. I can't remember what it was. Um, and she got up at the end of the consultation and she took out her credit card and she said, how much do I owe you? I went, you don't owe me anything. This is, you know, this is our national health. So you're here, you're paying taxes into our country. You know, you're allowed to be here. This is, this is free. And she started crying. She's like, I can't believe this. You know, you've done all this for me today and but I don't have to pay for this. And I thought, you know, we're very lucky to have what we've got in terms of the National Health Service. I know we're very lucky in elite sport to have access to private health care. But the National Health Service is the best thing that a country's ever given itself, in my opinion. Wow, that is incredible. That is so cool. Yeah, nice. Um, so I guess like sort of moving on from that now, and obviously we're in the sort of COVID pandemic, and as we're probably all aware, a lot has changed. Um, so looking forward now into the next sort of few months, years, and so on, how do you think um, sort of guidelines in sport will change to accommodate for this? So I know, for example, when I go into Wasps, I'll probably shake 20 people's hands, then they go and shake 20 people's hands, then they go for dinner, or sorry, breakfast, sorry. And, you know, the sort of transmission rate could be absolutely huge. Now, do you feel like there's going to be sort of diff- differences and changes in the guidelines that we have to sort of, um, sort of like apply to the club in a sporting setting going forward? Yeah, oh, huge, huge. Um, part of me wonders what will ever be the same again. Um, but also then the realism kicks in, you know, this isn't forever, but certainly it's very hard to see normality as it was uh, in the past. Um, so in return to sport or any sport, I know rugby season here is still trying to look at doing something over the summer, potentially to keep, you know, games going. Um, in other countries in France uh, and the pro 14 has all been canceled. So it depends which way you're looking at it. From a medical perspective, nothing we can do is, is a, or so we can't do anything ourselves until government tell us what we can do. So all our decision making is on the back of government guidelines and the DCMS, which is the sort of part of the government that looks after sport in particular, is working very hard at the moment. I do here to produce guidelines for that. The biggest change that we're going to see is in two components social distance will be with us probably at least for a year if not longer in my opinion and then testing until a vaccination if if there ever is a vaccination is produced vaccination will allow us to get back to what we call the normal of life giving your mates a high five giving your mates a hug giving your mates a handshake but that is on the basis that a they can find a vaccination that works and secondly, that vaccination is still applicable to the coronavirus the following year. In other words, the virus hasn't mutated like the flu virus does. So every year you have to have a flu jab. We hope the coronavirus virus vaccination will allow us to do that, or at least allow for an annual vaccination every year to reduce the deaths or illnesses as a result of it. 
So first things first, I would say is that vaccinations is what's going to take probably to get us back to normality. Therefore, until that point, sport has to learn to live with this virus in whatever shape that may be in order to a provide mental health for the nation. And I do believe sport is massive part of that. But then secondly, to allow athletes to train and play against each other safely, knowing that they're not exposing themselves or anybody else to, to this uh, particular virus at the moment. And the way that will be done will be in stages. So the government eventually, whenever that will be, will say, we allow you to train in small groups or allow small groups of people to be together. And that, so that will be then our indicator to say we can have groups of people training together. The next thing will be over a period of time, again, government guidelines to say rugby is obviously a contact sport. You can't play rugby unless you're handling the same ball uh, and you're playing close cross proximity to people. What point do we need to get to in order for that to be allowed? In other words, the virus rate and the, the drop in transmission rate and the death rate and the infection rate it needs to be dropping in such a way that the risk of that is probably no higher currently than, say, mumps, measles, or any other virus that we've not, uh, it's, it's hard to have vaccinations for or not had vaccinations for, or people have gaps in immunity in the case of those two viruses I've just mentioned. So we're probably quite a way from normality as we know it. However, testing and tracing will then allow us to have those small groups. So we'll be able to accurately test the second thing is test quickly because we don't want guys uh, being away for two weeks or five days to get a test result and it's negative. So it's going to take quite some time for testing and tracing to allow us to have groups of people who are generally healthier back together. On a positive note, there is reasonable evidence that exercise is protective against all forms or sorry, most forms of um, viruses that are affect the respiratory system then we don't know yet if coronavirus falls into that category yet but we know that moderate exercise in public is good for us it reduces infection rate it's then leads on to high intensity endurance athletes maybe more risk of an infection so we're saying at the moment if you're a triathlete or an iron man it would be pretty hard for you to be going off and absolutely killing yourself day to day at the moment with the risk of the transmissions going on. And I think that's probably common guidance that most athletes now at the moment are doing maintenance rather than, you know, trying to drive to a particular goal because we don't know when the goals will be allowed to be back into place again to allow sport. Rugby obviously has different ways and means around that, but our ultimate aim is to allow testing accurately and quickly enough that we can let players be in and around each other. So, it affects mostly the older age group. It mostly affects men. It mostly affects men over 65 with underlying health conditions or other comorbidities. So on a positive note, if you're young, fit and healthy, you generally don't have as many complications as an elderly relative might have. So there is positives around rugby players playing rugby. We just don't know yet how we get them to that stage of being allowed to do so. As I say, the government will eventually allow us and tell us how to do that. No, superb. I think you, you know, summarised that very, very nicely in terms of the time frame and the potential causes and everything and issues and stuff. So no, brilliant. So so leading into the sort of like the final question for tonight. And sure. you no, know, everybody loves a top three, don't they? 
So for an athlete to go from average to elite, so I kind of see that as you know just being able to turn up to every, well, the majority of your sessions, your training sessions, your games, events, races, and being able to make a positive impact into your sports and career. So the more they can attend these, the greater they're going to be essentially. So how can we say minimize the risk? So your top three of um, getting ill or an infection and being able to sort of um, prosper in your sport. So I think uh, top three things to stay healthy tips, get your vaccinations. I'm going to start with that first. Um, if, uh, because we're now dealing, and we're not talking coronavirus here, I'm talking of um, generations of athletes now who've maybe parents maybe didn't give them the MMR vaccination uh, because of the you know, so-called links to autism back in the early to mid nineties. There's a group of athletes now who've never been vaccinated for those illnesses. I've seen outbreaks of illnesses in students and, and athlete groups with that. So first of all, get all your vaccinations that you're entitled to your annual flu jab. If you need, if you need it, um, your, your other vaccinations, get up to date with what you're meant to have. Number one, number two, nutritionally talk to your nutritionist, talk to you, Chris, get good advice. And always take that advice with anything they look at in terms of supplementation. Always look for um, any anti-doping or doping concerns. That make sure you check what you take. Every athlete must get that point across. Supplementation does have a role in elite athletes. Clearly, it has been so for years. But you need to talk to a, a good nutritionist like you, Chris, to uh, <laughs> yeah, <Thank you>. <laughs> <laughs> to to get what's what's needed on board. And as a medical same with supplement that. I'd say the third thing um, would be don't be afraid to talk to your team or your doctor about other things that are not related to your sport. I genuinely mean this to, to any athlete that I look after or will look after is that we genuinely do care about you. We want what's best for you and it, we are not motivated by you know, ourselves, by fame, glory, money or any of that nonsense. We want what's best for you. That gives me the greatest satisfaction is sometimes just a look from a player to think, yeah, I'm back doing what I want to do, but we've dealt with so many other things along the way. And that to me is the best part of my job. So talk to your doctor uh, about other things that are affecting you, particularly mental health. Do not be ashamed about talking about your mental health. Get out there, talk about it. You'll inspire other people. Ralph, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on board tonight. It's been an absolute privilege speaking to you about this. And I'm pretty sure everybody listening to the podcast today will take a huge amount of uh, information and value from this. So for me and everyone listening, a big thank you. Uh, you're very welcome, Chris. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute uh, privilege and pleasure. And I say it's, it's, it's even better to work with you. Um, I can also vouch for you saying how much you've helped me along the way in the last few months transitioning from a rugby player into a middle-aged dad cyclist. And you've helped me a huge amount for that. So I, I can speak from a not only a pro professional, but also a, a customer service, should we say, point of view, that how good your service is. So I recommend you to everybody uh, that I can get my hands on. So yeah, thank you so much for all you've done as well. A, a bonus tip. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, brilliant. Once again, thank you so much. And guys, if you enjoyed today, uh, please don't forget to comment, share and subscribe. And until next time, bye-bye. Uh,